had a heart attack while running, literally died and fell to the ground. Now, there were some other people within the fun run who were offering assistance, two ambulance officers and myself. Well, we worked on this man. We got his heart beating again. We got him in the back of the ambulance and he went to the local hospital where he received a stent to the artery that runs down the front of his heart, opening it up and providing blood to the heart muscle that was being starved of oxygen. Well, he did really well, as it turns out. And this is a a snapshot of the newspaper where he featured on the front page in our small, uh, in, in the town or the city where I live. And so a couple of days later when this newspaper article appeared, and if you can read the fine print, you'll see that there was a mention of a cardiologist helping out in this gentleman's resuscitation. Well, I took a copy of this paper to my office to show my staff quite proudly what I'd been involved with. Well, it turned out it only took a couple of moments for one of my secretaries to point out I'd seen the very same man some 18 months earlier. Well, I was, as you might imagine, shocked to find out that I'd seen this man and in no way had I predicted that he was at increased risk. And in no way had I predicted that I'd be standing over his body trying to resuscitate him to save his life during a fun run. Well, what I want to talk about is what I learned from that experience and how it's changed the way I try and figure out about how healthy someone's heart is. I looked back in the notes for this gentleman and I found that I'd put him through a traditional risk factor calculator. One of these uh, very simple tools which allows us to put in this man's characteristics, his age and sex, his blood pressure, uh, smoking status, his total cholesterol, his so-called good cholesterol, whether he's diabetic and whether his ECG was normal. And for this man, he actually got a green thermometer, which would suggest his risk was low. And in fact, if you can read the print, it says your heart and stroke risk is 6%. This means you're at low risk of getting cardiovascular disease in the next five years. Well, of course, for this man, that wasn't the case. He actually had a heart attack. He wasn't at low risk at all. So what I'd like to talk about is how we figure out who really is at low risk and who really is at high risk and how we use this information from a risk calculator to try and be proactive for our own health. But first of all, where do risk factor calculators come from? Where did they originate and what's their background? Well, it turns out in post-war America, it became clear that the returned servicemen were dying at a rapid rate back in the United States and they were dying from heart attacks. And quite reasonably, the government very quickly wanted to know what was going on and started to do some research to try and understand the problem. In a place called Framingham in Massachusetts, USA, they started what's ended up being called the Framingham study, where they started to observe the population and see what linked the events, either cardiac or stroke or cardiac failure or death, what linked those to the characteristics of the population. And so over a period of 20 odd years, 
about 5,000 people who were enrolled into this observational data set were followed closely and information about their age and their sex and their smoking history, their cholesterol levels, their blood pressure, all these things were collected. And so when these people had an event or not, if they had a heart attack or a stroke or not, that the researchers could associate the characteristics with the outcome. This was a really important starting point for us to recognize the sort of environment of heart disease or stroke, the sort of things that could be contributory. And it became very clear things like smoking were very closely linked. Things like blood pressure were very closely linked. Remember though that these trials or this observational data set was very much one of looking at the outcome and matching the characteristics. So it was really a process of association, not necessarily causation. Because the Framingham data set gave rise to our risk calculators by observing the characteristics of individuals who have a particular condition, we can make an association. By doing that enough times with enough people, we can then figure out the rate of event within a particular population that has particular characteristics. So if we look at a group of people of a certain age, for example, we can figure out that if we watch that group of people with a certain age, over a certain period of time, there will be a rate of event within that population. So that is a, if you like, a population-based probability or the rate of event within a population. But that doesn't necessarily help our fun runner because he was in a population where the rate of event was said to be 6% over five years. Well, if we think about that, the rate of event of 6% over the next five years is really one that represents a population risk. And for our fun runner, didn't represent his individual risk. The risk that was represented by the risk calculator for the fun runner really told us that if we took 100 men with the same characteristics as our fun runner and followed those 100 men for five years, that six of them would have a heart attack. It's just we didn't know which six out of the 100. And we considered it a low-risk group because six out of 100 doesn't sound like very many people unless you're one of the six. So what I want you to try and understand and get your head around is that our risk factor calculator, the risk factor calculator that I used on our fun runner, gives us a rate of event within the population. But most of us are interested in our individual actuality. Our individual actuality over the next five years is going to be 0%. Nothing will happen to us or 100% something will happen to us. Well, my area of interest is trying to be proactive and having a better understanding and bringing precision to that risk assessment for individuals. If we think about taking our 100 people that have a rate of six in 100 having an event, 
My interest is in scanning those people's hearts and finding the high risk people. But let's think about that population based risk just a little more. Here's a great way to think of the event rate based on a risk factor calculator within a population. This is the 50 year old male 100 voice choir and the choir master understands this concept of risk within the population perfectly. And he says, okay guys, I've spoken to the doc and he says 10 to 15 of you will have a heart attack in the next 10 years. Could I just ask that it's not all the tanners? Well, of course, lighthearted, but it's true. And my interest as a preventative cardiologist is to try and be more precise. What if we could actually take those 100 men in the 50 year old male 100 voice choir and put them through a process where we can literally look at the health of their arteries and find those that are at high risk, those that are truly at low risk and those in between. Do you think that would be a helpful progression in terms of being most precise and bringing precision to that individual's care? What if I could have scanned the fun runner when I first saw him? So let's think about if we can bring imaging into that equation. And it turns out that our current technology with modern CT scanners allows us the opportunity to image the art, the use of contrast to get an appreciation of plaque buildup in the arteries. That buildup of plaque in the arteries is literally the way to tell if the arteries are healthy or unhealthy. Lots of buildup of plaque in the arteries, unhealthy. No buildup, pretty healthy, very low risk. So this is a great way to start to be more precise looking at the individual's heart and seeing exactly what's going on for them. It allows us to bring traditional risk factors in line with what's going on within that person's heart, which may be related to local factors. And if we think about uh, traditional risk factors and local factors, think about, for example, if you owned a car and lived by the sea. So we're gonna talk about rust as an example of plaque in the arteries. So hang with me for a moment, but if you've got a car and you're by the sea, I would put to you that there, if rust forms, there will be local factors that drive that. Maybe where there's been a scratch, maybe where there's a weld point, maybe where there's a corner. But there's also going to be environmental factors that drive that rust. And those environmental factors are going to be things like the ocean spray, the salt in the air. So we're balancing environmental with local factors. And I'm talking about rust in a car, but equally I could be talking about plaque within arteries. We know that arteries often have plaque formation at points of shear stress, at points where there's a bifurcation or branch point. But we also know that the environment of plaque formation is really important. Things like diabetes, blood pressure, cholesterol levels, smoking history, and the formation of plaque in the arteries or rust in the pipes is the interplay of what's going on in the environment of plaque formation together with local factors within that individual's arteries. So let's think about that. 
and apply it to a few cases because we all think about people who might have high cholesterols or low cholesterols or look after themselves and uh, don't look after themselves but don't have a heart attack or look really fit and surprisingly do have a heart attack. So we're going to run through a few cases just to help us get a better idea of the difference between environment plus or minus local factors within an individual. So for these cases I'm going to share with you, I'd like to you to think about whether the risk factor calculation or the risk or population risk assessment alters your management and then whether the imaging of that individual alters your management. I want you to try and pretend to be doctors for a moment. So put on your doctor's hats and think, do I want to treat this person with a cholesterol tablet or not? So here we go. So let's take Janet, who's 64 years of age. Her cholesterol's uh, 6.8 millimoles per litre. If you use milligrams per decilitre, that's about 250. So her cholesterol's up there. Her good cholesterol, the so-called HDL cholesterol, is pretty good. She had a bad family history of premature coronary disease in the family. Her local doctor wanted to put her on a cholesterol tablet. She didn't want to be on a tablet because she'd listened to social media and heard all the bad things about taking statins. Her doctor had put her on a bit of uh, low-dose aspirin, and I suggested that we scan her arteries to see what's actually going on, and so we did. But before we did, we actually put her through a risk calculator, just like this. As a 64-year-old female with average blood pressure and the cholesterols mentioned, her risk of a heart attack in the next five years was estimated to be 5%. But you might notice that that risk calculator doesn't mention family history at all. Do you think that would be important? And would you be thinking about putting this person on treatment or not at this stage? So we did image this lady's arteries and we did find that there was a tiny bit of calcium, not much, a score of nine. And for a woman of her age, a really average amount. Would you treat that? Hard to know but we injected contrast to get an even better picture of what was going on in this lady's arteries. And as it turned out, she had negligible, negligible plaque whatsoever. So she had got to 64 years of age with barely a problem. And she personally didn't want to be on a cholesterol agent. It was hard to make a case to put her on one. We could watch and see how she go, went, but we could certainly have a discussion about her not being at super high risk and where to go from there. Kim was 56 when I met her. Her cholesterol had been treated because it had previously been 8.1, which is over 300 milligrams per deciliter. If you look at that on a risk calculator, it's through the roof and there's no question we would all want to treat that. On treatment, it had all come down and you can see her corrected uh, risk factor after treatment of her cholesterol brought her risk factors right down to a 3% risk. Well, everyone would normally be pretty happy with that. But it turned out that this lady had a really bad family history and she wanted to know a bit more. So I suggested we might like to get some imaging done, which we did. It only showed a tiny little bit of calcification, but we did inject some contrast to try and get a better idea of exactly what we're dealing with. And you can see right here, a nasty plaque at the very beginning of a major artery that runs down the front of her heart. A great bit of information to help us be precise in this lady's care. It meant that we could then turn around and say to this lady, look, 
we really want to drive those cholesterol levels down. We also want to improve those triglyceride levels. And we can keep a close eye on this lady and really make sure that we are well informed of her future risks. Alan was 76 when he came to accident emergency. He was an active farmer. He'd had a bit of chest pain. He was cleared through accident and emergency, no abnormal blood tests, no abnormal ECG. He got put through a stress test, which he passed with flying colors. He was on no regular meds. The risk factor calculator estimated his risk at about 12%, which is sort of borderline. And a lot of people would think about treating that. He wasn't keen to be treated. He was a fit, healthy fellow. I said to him, we might want to look at your arteries just to see what's going on, which we duly did. He had a calcium score of well over a thousand, in fact, approaching 15,000. And for a man of his age, that put him above the 90th centile, which means out of a group of 100 men his age, about 90 of them or more would have less calcium in their arteries. And calcium is a high risk feature. This was a substantially surprising finding. But would it alter your management? You bet it would. If you knew he had that much stuff going on in his arteries, you would want to do something about it. So we certainly did. We put him on some therapy and he's been well ever since. I'm going to wrap up with Jim, who had a cholesterol of over 350, couldn't tolerate statins, terrible looking risk profile when we looked at his arteries. Surprise, surprise, almost pristine. I want you to get the message that cardiac CT imaging is a remarkable way to look into the future and better than trying to crystal, crystal ball it from simply traditional risk factors alone. So what I'd like to do is wrap up there. I'd like to invite you to go and have a look at drwarwickbishop.com where I've got lots of information, podcasts, etc., cetera, um, and videos which explain these concepts even more. And I'm going to wrap up there. Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to share. Uh, I hope that uh, that's informative and I wonder if you've got any questions. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Bishop. That was quite informative. Uh, so uh, a lot of people are putting questions about uh, uh, their condition of heart with, with respect to the whole COVID uh, happening. So how does it affect that and how, uh, what, uh, preventive measures can we take? So there's a number of issues around that. Uh, first of all, we uh, early on, there was some talk about whether some of the blood pressure tablets, which uh, interact with receptors within the lung that could uh, aid COVID-19 getting into the lungs might be a problem. That was very speculative. That was poor observational research. And it's subsequently shown that some of the blood pressure tablets that we use, the so-called ACE inhibitors and AT2 blockers, are perfectly safe uh, and do not increase your risk of COVID. So there is no reason to stop tablets at this stage. There's even a little bit of uh, preliminary data that might suggest those tablets are beneficial. It turns out that the people who are suffering from COVID-19 more often are the older age group and they have multiple medical issues and often within those multiple medical issues they may have heart conditions or high blood pressure so by virtue of the fact that they're a bit older they have multiple medical conditions people with heart problems are being caught up in certainly the poor outcomes associated with COVID-19 within a group of people within who suffer severe COVID-19 
a portion of those people actually get the infection within the heart muscle. We would call that a myositis or a myocarditis where the infection is directly affecting the heart muscle as well as the lungs. And these people are very, very sick. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, one more thing, so uh, people are, have, uh, because of this lockdown and people are staying home, they have, they have been living a very sedentary lifestyle for the past two or three months. And a lot of people are scared, speculating that it will have a toll on their uh, heart health and issues like obesity and all will crop up. So do you have any suggestions on how, what should we do once this, uh, to uh, cater to this problem? So I think, I think it's very important to try and take away part of the message I shared tonight, which is uh, there are traditional risk factors and there are things that happen within individuals that we can't predict very well unless we look. So we'll take that out of the equation because you're asking me about, um, you're asking me specifically about uh, exercise and obesity. Well, there's no question that obesity is detrimental to heart health. So losing weight um, and keeping the weight off is very important to keep your blood pressure down, improve sleep, uh, improves your cholesterol levels and so forth. And exercise, there's no question that regular exercise is beneficial for your heart health. Generally, if you can manage uh, 30 minutes, five times a week, that would be brilliant. Very difficult in these times. Um, while you're not able to exercise as much, I often find that a good number of my patients respond well to keeping their carbohydrate consumption down a bit as one way to avert too much weight gain when they're not exercising as much, not burning as many calories. So keeping the carbohydrates down can be beneficial. But exercise, I don't know, maybe get a stationary bike, maybe don't eat too much while you're, while you're in lockdown. Yeah. So, uh, is asking, uh, nowadays people are facing problem of hypertension, especially uh, uh, do you recommend uh, taking any hypertension medicine for young people? Yeah, so blood, raised blood pressure is an incredibly important piece of maintenance for us to look after in the long term. Raised blood pressure impacts the whole vascular tree. If you could imagine if you had an irrigation system and the pressure within your irrigation system was too high, you would wear out the pipes and put the pipes on strain. You'd put strain on the filter within your irrigation system and you'd put strain on the pump. Well, the heart is no different. If you've got raised blood pressure within the body, you increase your chance of stroke, heart attack, kidney failure. You can also develop a problem called atrial fibrillation and you can develop cardiac failure. So, blood pressure is incredibly important. And from a young age, the longer you put that wear and tear on your vasculature, the greater the damage it'll be. And for anyone who's carrying too much weight, for anyone who's overweight, every kilogram that you can lose in weight will drop your blood pressure by one millimeter of mercury. So it's very valuable not to push that weight up and then to bring that weight down if you're too high, because it will help with blood pressure control. But blood pressure treatment, even from an early age, is incredibly important because the wear and tear is cumulative over years. Okay, so you like it's okay to take medicine uh, if you have such symptoms at an early age? 
Absolutely. If you have high blood pressure at a young age, you should be taking the appropriate tablets. Remember, though, that some people at a young age who have elevated blood pressure have a reversible cause. And so seeing a specialist who knows about blood pressure and how to investigate blood pressure properly is really important because occasionally it'll be a very specific reversible condition. So uh, good evaluation and appropriate treatment for blood pressure from as early as possible is, is best, best recommendation for good heart health in the long term. Hello. So, uh, any uh, like uh, tips, uh, final recommendations you like to give to our audience? So, one of the things I get asked a lot is, "What should I be eating? What should I be eating uh, for a healthy heart?" The answer would would be lying with, and I know you're in India, so don't take this as an international comment. But we talk about a Mediterranean diet, and a Mediterranean diet would have lots of greens in it. Uh, not too much meat, uh, nuts, extra virgin olive oil. Um, I think things like legumes are valuable. Avocado can lower cholesterol, but very sensible sort of eating patterns together with some regular exercise and keeping the carbohydrates down is also a valuable thing to do. And make sure those carbohydrates are complex if you are eating them. So a couple of simple things, lots of extra virgin olive oil, nuts are good, lots of greens, keep the carbohydrates down and exercise, but also go and get your heart scan checked. <laughs> thank you so much for the sessions. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Bishop, for your time today. Uh, I think we learned a very valuable lesson, lesson takeaways for maintaining our health of your heart.